Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Now it is time for the sports news for Sunday, March 26th, and your reader today is Chris Greco. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or who have other disabilities that make it difficult to print, sorry, to read printed material. I'm reading from the March print edition of Sports Illustrated. Record time. If the NBA career scoring mark is broken and hardly anyone is there to see it, did it really happen? We found out in 1984. The points that broke the NBA's most hallowed record, hallowed record came on a shot no one uses, in a gym built for college games, in a city with no NBA team, with just one league official present to commemorate the feat and a fledgling cable network there to broadcast it. The moment was magical, emotional, and over within minutes. Hoops taking precedence over hoopla. Yes, dear reader, 1984 was a different time. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was a towering figure in every sense when he switched the skyhook that lifted him past Wilt Chamberlain as the sport's all-time scoring leader on April 5th of that year. But the NBA itself was smaller, less glitzy, less boisterous, less, less self-promotional, less everything than the league of today. As LeBron James closed on Abdul-Jabbar's scoring total, 3,387 points, in February, League officials were making plans for a live, global broadcast of the record-breaking moment to be attended by NBA Commissioner Adam Silver, alongside countless other league officials, celebrities, and hundreds of reporters. An on-court celebration featuring Abdul-Jabbar himself was considered a given. I think it's spectacular, Silver speaking in January, said of James's enduring excellence at age 38. I hope fans are paying a lot of attention to what's happening right now, Fans surely were paying attention to the chase by the millions, perhaps the tens of millions, with the NBA now routinely beaming its games into living rooms in China, India, Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. By contrast, and man, is it a contrast, Abdul-Jabbar's special moment 29 years ago was almost an intimate affair, charming in its minimalism. David Stern, two months into his role as commissioner, was the only NBA official in attendance. Lakers owner Jerry Buss skipped the game entirely. So did Chamberlain, though he attended the next game in L.A. The only special guests were Abdul-Jabbar's parents, Ferdinand and Cora Alcindor. I really thought it was kind of underplayed, to be honest, recalls Thomas Bonk, who covered the game for the Los Angeles Times. I didn't think it was that big of a deal. The league was kind of new to the PR business. The game did draw a surge of reporters, an estimated 20 to 30, by most recollections, a virtual media mob by 1980s standards. It was broadcast nationally by the USA Network, which was known then for cartoons and talk shows. The oddest footnote of all was the game's location, UNLV's Thomas and Mack Center, which served as the home court for 11 jazz games that season, an effort to extend their fan base beyond Utah. 
Vegas gave it a little more extra pizzazz, recalls Lakers forward James Worthy. We often view the 80s as the NBA's golden era, the time of Magic and Bird and Michael. But from a media and marketing standpoint, it was practically the dark ages, a time before cable connected every home, before home satellite dishes and the internet, before ESPN became a behemoth, before Nike turned stars into megastars, before Gatorade urged us to be like Mike. We were just trying to get through the day back then, said Brian McIntyre, the league's former longtime director of public relations. We had all kinds of issues in front of us, and it was with a much smaller NBA back then, so we weren't really concerned with things like this. David wanted to go out there to show the respect that the office of the commissioner should have for a key player. In a grainy snippet of video posted to YouTube, Stern holds a microphone amid a small crowd on the court and congratulates Abdul-Jabbar as, quote, the highest scorer in the history of the National Basketball Association. Abdul-Jabbar, clearly emotional, thanks his parents and the fans before turning and heading back to the Lakers bench, the game ball tucked under his left arm. The whole thing lasts about four minutes. It was definitely hit the hook shot, thank you for the basketball, and let's go back to business, Worthy says. The Lakers back then didn't spend much time planning for Abdul-Jabbar's record-breaking shot, save for one detail. We all knew that the only person that was going to pass him the ball was Magic, says Mitch Kupchak, who subbed in for Abdul-Jabbar once the record was secure. As the video shows, countless well-wishers flooded the court after the record-breaking shot, while the Lakers' director of promotions, Lon Rosen, frantically worked to unite Abdul-Jabbar with his parents amid the chaos. McIntyre, upon seeing Stern back in the office, recalls telling him, maybe it's time for you to start traveling with somebody. The Lakers would have preferred the moment come at home, or at least in an NBA city, Rosen says, but there was little they could do, short of benching Abdul-Jabbar, which would never have happened. Anyway, as Bonk recalls, the venue made for an, un for an even more festive mood for players, fans, and media alike. It was almost like, let's get this over with so we can go hit the casino tables, he says. Indeed, Rosen call, recalls seeing the entire team, minus Abdul-Jabbar, in the casino that night. The game was covered by the usual gaggle of beat writers and columnists from L.A. and Salt Lake City, plus the wire services, the New York Times, and Sports Illustrated. By comparison, Kobe Bryant's final game in 2016 drew more than 450 media members, which league officials cited as a relevant baseline in the planning of LeBron's record-breaking night. A more extensive celebration of Abdul-Jabbar's feat came one night later at the Forum, before a game against the Kansas City Kings. According to the account in the Los Angeles Times, Sturm gave Abdul-Jabbar a diamond and a gold ring to commemorate the record. From Adidas, his shoe sponsor, he received a Mercedes. From Bus, a home stereo system. And from his teammates, a Leroy Neiman portrait of Abdul-Jabbar shooting his famous skyhook. Chamberlain, who had a frosty relationship with Abdul-Jabbar, did attend that ceremony, wearing a blank tack top and black slacks. He was gracious that night, in contrast to an interview he gave to Bonk days earlier, when he said snarkily, if I had received half of the fanfare that Kareem is getting at this time, I wouldn't know what to do with myself. Though he praised Abdul-Jabbar's scoring prowess, Chamberlain also sniffed, if this record is so great, well... It's only one of about 90 I held. I must be in a world by myself. Abdul-Jabbar and James have a relationship that is slightly warmer. 
It is probably best described as distant, but respectful. Regarding the scoring record, though, Abdul-Jabbar has been consistently gracious. The game always improves when records like that are broken, he said in an ESPN interview last August, so LeBron should enjoy his achievement. It's an honor few men have known in the NBA's 76-year existence. Joel Folks was the first to hold the title, retiring in 1952 with 7,021 points. He was eventually supplanted by George Mikan, the first to reach 10,000 points, who gave way to Dolph Shays, who surrendered the title to Bob Pettit, who retired in 1965 with 20,880 points. I honestly don't even remember if they stopped the game, says Pettit, now 90. It was just another event in the history of the NBA. I mean, it was not a big deal to anybody, except to me, it was a pretty big deal. Pettit did get to keep the ball, he says. His reign, however, lasted a mere two years before Chamberlain overtook him in 1966. For Pettit, it's still a point of pride that he achieved the record in just 11 seasons. Chamberlain passed him in just seven seasons, but Abdul-Jabbar, but eventually played 14. Abdul-Jabbar needed 15 seasons to pass Chamberlain and retired after 20, equaling James's current total. No one can say who, if anyone, will challenge the mark again. Even with today's supercharged offenses and the popularity of the three-pointer, it will require a player of uncommon skill, commitment, good health, and good luck. Chick Hearn, the legendary Lakers broadcaster, summed it up nicely minutes after Abdul-Jabbar seized the record. The way I got it figured, if a man played every single game, and nobody can, for 15 years, 82 games a year for 15 years and averaged 25 points, he would tie what's been done here tonight. But nobody's going to play every game for 15 years. No one is in the physical shape this guy is in and not many people ever play the game 15 years. It wasn't a ludicrous take in 1984. It would have been more ludicrous to imagine a future athlete who passed like Magic, scored like Michael, was built like Wilt, stood an inch shorter than Pettit, and had the audacity and endurance to outshine them all. Familiar Ring Creed Three star Michael B. Jordan discusses how he's settling into a new role, director. Since Rocky premiered in 1976, the iconic boxing franchise has produced eight sequels or spin-offs. The latest, Creed III, is the first film in the series that doesn't feature Sylvester Stallone's Rocky Balboa, though Sly serves as one of its producers. That puts the focus of the movie, which opens March 3rd, squarely on the character of Adonis Creed, who is portrayed by Michael B. Jordan, the film's director. The 36-year-old recently talked to Sports Illustrated's Chris Mannix about taking on new responsibility and what the future might hold. Sports Illustrated. This is your first gig as a director. Why did you want to do it? Michael B. Jordan. It really started during the process of finding a director for Creed II. Producer Erwin Winkler suggested I direct the next one. During Creed II, I would act like it was going to happen. I'd think about what I'd do differently. What would be my approach to the fights? What would I want for storylines and story arcs? Sports Illustrated, so what did you do differently in this film? Michael B. Jordan, the gift and the curse of being the ninth installment is that there have to be so many approaches to the boxing. There's only so many ways you could shoot a jab, a right hook, or a straight right. So it forced me to be more creative. How do I bring my, tr my inspiration from Japanese animation and anime to these action scenes and fighting scenes? How do I bring that into the world of boxing? 
I took some creative swings and an S load of pride went into that into the fights of this movie to elevate them. Sports Illustrated. This is the first Creed film that moves away from existing plot lines. You're not fighting Clubber Lang's son, right? Michael B. Jordan. It's really leaning into the hero of the movie, Adonis, following his path through his family and his journey and how he becomes a better man. That's the underdog story that we focused on in this franchise. I frame it as an origin story and a sequel all in one. Sports Illustrated. It's also the first film without Sylvester Stallone. Michael B. Jordan. There are obviously politics that go beyond me, but we really moved into Adonis's world. We leaned into his family and how he got into the ring. What happened in those early years, and Sly is a producer on this. The essence of Rocky and Sly will always be throughout the Creed franchise. We just felt like it was the best way to move forward. Sports Illustrated, could we see him return in Creed 4? Michael B. Jordan, I think there's always space for Sly, for Rocky, to come back. That's one of those amazing things about the character, is it would make sense in any storyline. Source Sports Illustrated. So there will be a Creed 4? Michael B. Jordan. Expanding the Creed universe is definitely on my mind. There is definitely going to be a Creed 4. Sports Illustrated. You're 36. Is, getting, is it getting harder to maintain the Creed physique? Michael B. Jordan. I'm stretching a lot more. I'm soaking. Icy hot, tiger balm. Those are my friends. Having to maintain that physique while directing was the biggest challenge. I try to live like a boxer as much as I can, put in the hours they put in. But I'll tell you this, there ain't going to be a Rocky Balboa. I'm not fighting in Creed 6. That isn't happening. Sports Illustrated, you ever think about a real fight? Celebrity boxing is a big thing now. Michael B. Jordan, once or twice, it was around the time Jake Paul and Logan Paul and these YouTubers were coming up. I've watched a lot of people get inside the ring that didn't have as much experience as I did. And my friends would be like, Mike, when are you getting in there? Logan Paul even called me out. I let it slide, but it was definitely something I thought about. Eats, food, drink, culture, sports, full plate. What's it like being a major league foodie? As the Mets Mark Kana can attest, it requires a lot of planning. When he was growing up in San Jose, Matt's outfielder, Mark Kana, wasn't eating your typical children's fare of hot dogs and plain pasta with butter. No, he was more of a cousselet and a risotto kid. Kana's father, David, was a semiconductor salesperson who often traveled to Europe, and when he returned home, he tried to replicate the continental cuisine he'd enjoyed for his family. There was always a lot of variety, says Mark. As a kid, you're not always into eating stuff that's not familiar, but I think that exposure, being around that kind of food, and seeing my parents set an example of eating fancier things gave me more of an open mind as I got older. Kana enjoyed the globally diverse cuisine of Berkeley, California when he attended Cal and during his seven-year stint with the A's. He lived primarily across the bay in San Francisco, another Epicurean mecca. As such, he's becoming something rare in baseball, a world in which post-game meals are eaten at the stadium, a legitimate foodie. On one hand, having a job where he travels to virtually every major city in the country gives Kana, whose Instagram handle is Big at Big League Foodie, the opportunity to indulge his Jones. But he's also at the park almost every day. It takes some planning. I have to make sure that on the off days and the day games that I'm set up with the reservation somewhere, he says. So a few times during the season, I'll sit down and kind of map out the next three or four weeks. 
Tana often dines out by himself, but occasionally a team will tag along. Pete Alonzo is also something of a known foodie, and last year Kana explored Queens with reliever Trevor May and a writer from GQ. His favorite cities are New York and San Francisco, with Miami as the top up-and-comer. Strangest thing he's eaten? Pigeon in Morocco. It didn't taste like chicken. For now, Kana is at spring training. There are good options, but the extended time in Florida living by himself, his wife and two daughters didn't make the trip, lets him take part in another aspect of the culinary experience. I'm very into cooking too, and I don't get to do that at home as much as I'd like, just because it's a little more hectic with life and with kids, he says. So, this is my opportunity. Feel the noise. Shane Van Boeing doesn't curse, doesn't smoke, doesn't drink, but that's not why his senses, all but one, are heightened. The crowd could hear Shane Van Boeing. He took an audible breath, expelling at least a little bit of the pressure. As he orbited the table, sizing up his shot, his shoes squeaked on the floor. His eyes narrowed and fixed on the spherical targets. He cocked back his cue like an archer drawing back his bow and fired, sending balls clicking and clacking across the table. Days earlier, he left his home on the Great American Plains and endured a travel odyssey, multiple flights, coach seating, to get to Marshall Arena, a glorified convention hall midway between London and Birmingham. Now he had, a, he had displayed his skills masterly. The warm spring air outside had found its way inside the venue for this final match of the 2022 World Nine Ball Championship. The 39-year-old Van Boeing had been to the final twice before, one match from winning the sport's biggest title. Both times, he failed to close. And this time, too, started inauspiciously, down 3-1 in the racks. Each time a player successfully pockets the mind ball, they win a rack in this competition. The first to win 13 racks would win the title. To Albin Ushan, a wiry Austrian. But then, in pool terms, Van Boeing, quote, caught a gear. He began sniping shots with the sort of bloodless efficiency that has characterized his 20-year pro career dating to his teens when he burst on the pool scene with the irresistible nickname, the South Dakota Kid. Potting ball after ball, he projected little emotion, drawing even at four racks apiece. Four racks later, they were tied again at six. But then Van Boning, more pool glossary, in quote, dead stroke, ran out the match with seven straight racks. Watching tableside, one observer rightly called it effortless and breathtaking at the same time. With the final katunk, the last, a maroon and yellow striped nine ball, expertly struck and disappearing from sight into the corner pocket, Van Boeing had done it. Finally, he was a world champion. And he would ascend to the sport's number one ranking. Confetti shot out of a cannon. The crowd cheered rapturously. He jumped atop the table and let out a primal screen. Not that he had heard much of it, even his own yell. He'd turned down his hearing aids. Pool is very much a sport of feel. Power is much less important than savvy positioning and soft touch. Born of hand-eye coordination, there is a distinct smell to pool, often played in air perfumed with a blend of smoke, beer, mildew, and chalk, accented with money and sometimes with a violence. Pool has its unique visuals, the felt-covered rectangles, smooth, multicolored spheres and wooden cylinders, all silhouetted by overhead lights. And there is the soundtrack, clicks and clacks and thwacks layered with music, smart money, classic rock, and chatter from the railbirds. For Shane Van Boning, experience pool with three out of those four senses is good enough. 
he was born 97% deaf. But that wasn't going to pose much of a bumper and prevent him from becoming a pool savant. He first held a cue in his hands when he was two. By age three, he was the star attraction at a local pool exhibition in and around his hometown of Rapid City, South Dakota. By age nine, he was winning trophies. By his early teens, he was envisioning pool as a viable career. He came by the sport honestly. Van Boning's grandfather, Gary Bloomberg, was a formidable road player who ran a pool room in Rapid City, a frontier town a tap-in away from Mount Rushmore. His mother and aunt were the Williams sisters of South Dakota Pool, fearless ass-kickers and regional champs who might have become full-time pros had more opportunity existed during their heydays. Raising Shane as a single mother, Timmy Bloomberg considered putting her son in a school for deaf students, but he resisted. He wanted to assimilate. Van Boning doesn't know sign language, but with his hearing aid switched on, he can hear adequately. His time spent in local public schools, though, was accompanied by a heavy and regular dose of bullying. It was pretty bad, he says. Kids were pushing me around, they were throwing rocks at me, they were beating me up. It's all because I was hearing impaired. The day of the high school graduation, Van Boning told his mother he didn't want to attend the ceremony, put off as he was by the treatment he had received throughout school. He went to a pool tournament in Los, Angeles, Las Vegas instead. He came back with a first place trophy. Pool was a stabilizing force, and the pool room was a sanctuary. There, he would lose himself amid all that felt. Van Boning spent hours running racks, practicing, and repracticing. You walk in the pool room, you smell the atmosphere, the pool table, the colors of the balls, everybody having a good time, he says. There's just a lot of things that come together that makes you want to play pool. As word of this talented, deaf kid sprung up beyond the region and through the pool grapevine, Van Boning faced a dilemma. He could tack around the country, perhaps even the world, as a stealthy road player, trying to hustle and rustle up action, or he could try to go legit and become a pro. In his late teens, he took a shot at the former. He and his uncle got into an RV and merged into Interstate 90, which runs right outside his grandfather's old pool room. In Tennessee, Van Boning was playing a money game against a local who didn't take well to losing. His opponent picked up a pool ball and flung it at him. He hit me, Van Boning recalls. He hit me right on the chest. For Van Boning, it wasn't grounds for going home. At that point, he says, I didn't want to gamble with anyone anymore. I don't need this. It's too dangerous. Next, at age 19, he decided to head off on the pro tour. As popular as pool might be in basements and rec rooms and dive bars, it's never translated into much of a professional sport. Too much ambient grit and grime. Even the aughts, when it ran as a counter-programming on ESPN, very little TV money filtered down to the athletes. Players who could win, quote, big timber, gambling might win a tournament and take home only a few thousand bucks. Worse, once your, once your identity was revealed as a pro player, your days as a hustler, even a sandbagger, were numbered which was fine by Van Boning. He preferred the sunshine of honest competition. He also came to realize that his impaired hearing wasn't simply an obstacle he overcame, but could also be an advantage. As is so often the case, his other senses may have compensated for his lack of hearing. Timmy notices that her son's powers of visualization are unrivaled. What's more, Van Boning discovered that by turning off his hearing aids, he could block out all distractions and ambient noise. I'm like 100% zoned in on to play, he says. I can feel the vibration of the balls hitting a pocket. That's always a good feeling. But otherwise, 
I hear nothing. Not that his deafness hasn't come with complications. At the 2021 U.S. Open, Van Boning was playing a critical match and requested a time extension before a particularly difficult shot. The official, however, didn't hear his request, and Van Boning didn't hear the warning bells. He was called for a time violation. Though, his opponent, Aloysius Yap of Singapore, acted honorably and declined the penalty, thereby giving Van Boning a chance to continue playing. Other opponents have been less charitable. Earl Strickland, a hothead often likened to a volatile John McEnroe, once faced Van Boning in a tournament. To call attention to Van Boning's perceived advantage, Strickland entered the room wearing comically oversized headphones. Oh, I was mad, recalls Timmy. Oh, it hurt my feelings, I mean, because I knew it hurt Shane. If so, he didn't show it. Van Boning laughed at the effort and defeated Strickland decisively. Apart from his lack of hearing, Van Boning doesn't exactly act like your archetypal archetypal pool player either. He doesn't curse, doesn't smoke, doesn't drink soda, much less alcohol. He eats well, works out, practices visualizations, and generally leads the life of a committed professional athlete. Asked why more competitive players don't favor his lifestyle, Van Boning explains, There are a thousand pool rooms I've been into all over the world, and they all have some things in common, and it's drinking and smoking. At least by pool standards, he's made considerable money. Instead of putting it back into action, as so many of his colleagues would, he's invested in rental properties throughout South Dakota. When he's not hunched over a felt-covered table, you're likely to catch him on a nearby lake ice fishing. It's easy to draw parallels between his vocation and his avocation, the need for patience, the lulls followed by sudden bursts of excitement, etc. But he waves that off. I just like being by myself in nature. Now comes his highest degree of difficulty shot yet. For decades, Poole has struggled to take its recreational popularity and alchemize it into a viable pro tour. But as the hustler becomes an endangered species, their chances at anonymity, done in by phone cameras, this shift has reinvigorated the push for a streamlined pro tour. The British promotional company, Matchroom, came in and cleaned up darts and snooker, elevating television production, marketing, top players as celebrities, and basically adding an overall level of professionalism. It's now turned its attention to pool. And Matchroom sees a star in Shane Van Boning. A cross between Mary Poppins and Roger Goodall, Emily Fraser is tasked with heading up this rebrand. Never mind stripes and solids, this is the ultimate contrast. This debonair British woman is trying to impose order on the chaos of pool. One imagines her surprise upon an early encounter with a pool pro. This chap has walked over and he's wearing a trilby hat, a t-shirt tucked out, his baggy jeans, and I looked and thought, oh my goodness, this is what we're facing. Fortunately, she has no such problems with Van Boning, a clean-cut gentleman who walks around wearing Louis Vuitton tennis shoes. When the matchroom events wend their way into cities, the circuit will feature 10 sponsored tournaments in 2023. Van Boning, the world's top player for most of 2022, will be the face of the tour. We obviously love Shane. As a front-facing figure, Fraser says, how could you not? He has validated the faith we've, they've put in him. A few months from his 40th birthday, he's playing as well as ever. When Van Boning isn't on the road, you'll find him in Rapid City as the pool hall or at the pool hall or out on one of the lakes fishing, enjoying the silence as ever. Every now and then, he runs into some of his high school tormentors in town. It happened recently, in fact. He was washing my car, Van Boning says. I drove through a car wash and he didn't notice me. 
but I noticed him. How did that make him feel, tooling around in an SUV, replete with a vanity license plate, reading Rackham 9, while one of his high school bullies buffed and waxed his ride? He thinks a moment, as if sizing up a nine ball. I didn't feel anything. I just try to be nice and polite. This wraps it up for the sports news from the Sports Illustrated for Sunday, March 26th. Your reader for today has been Chris Greco. Thank you for listening. And now please stay tuned for... Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.